If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Revelation 1, uh, and we're going to be finishing our, our look at chapter 1 as we've kind of themed the Christ we worship. And just a really quick kind of heads up on what's coming next, because this is the end of our look at chapter 1. But whether you know this or not, we've mentioned this here and there. I don't know if you've paid attention uh, or maybe if we just haven't said it enough, but we're actually laying the groundwork for our fall series. Okay, As we look at chapter 1, uh, and we'll take a little three-week break that I'll mention more about here in just a second. But uh, after that three-week break, we're actually going to dive into Revelation chapters uh, 2 and 3. And so if, you've, if you're familiar with that portion of, of Scripture, and, and maybe you're one of the people where Revelation has scared you, and you've literally never turned to the page because you were afraid like you would have visions or something, I, I don't know. But if you're familiar with Revelation, it's a pretty phenomenal book, and, and uh, we are going to look at chapters 2 and 3. And those are Christ's letters to, to seven churches, real-life churches in real-life places, uh, it's in modern-day Turkey. The cities are still there for the most part. There's even representation of, of, of Christian uh, uh, gathering and the church represented in some of those cities. Uh, and this is a pretty phenomenal look into history uh, as Jesus writes letters to churches. And, and I just wanted to tell you now just to begin to think and pray on this. And so here's what we're asking you to pray about. As we take a really sobering look at Christ's letters to, his, to seven churches that, that we believe represent all churches, and certainly could. As we look at those seven churches, our prayer as, as elders, and certainly Dave and I as we teach this, is that uh, Jesus, if you were to write us at Willow Bend a letter, what, what, would, what would you say to us? Um, and, and I want us all to feel the weight of that, not just Dave and I who will teach the text. This, this, this applies to all of us. And so would you begin praying now that, that we as, uh, as a congregation, uh, certainly as, a, as an elder servant leadership group, that we would be so sensitive to whatever blind spots we might have as a, as a church uh, as we seek to honor Christ as much as humanly possible on this side of heaven as a church. Amen. Would you do that with us, please? Um, and so we, we do hope, and, and I expect for us to be very encouraged um, but let's not be naive enough to believe that we won't be lovingly encouraged. Uh, some of these churches were even condemned. The tone is Christ saying, I have this against you. Um, I mean, God forbid we, we experience that, but God forbid even more that we not address places in our worship that, that aren't honoring to him. Um, and so that, that'll be a very sobering, but I, I think hopefully challenging, but encouraging look at those seven churches. And that'll be in the fall. Uh, and then after today, we will look at our, our, our what we call our vision, or vision emphasis. And, and here's the deal: Willa Bend, you're, you're not gonna, what you're not going to find here is is a, a vision casting leader um, saying, "Here's how we're going to do church. Here's here's the new and, and revolutionary way that we've discovered church works." Uh, Christ is the head of his church. Christ is the vision casting leader of his church. Uh, that's why our, our live sent vision comes straight from the words of Jesus. In John chapter 20, verse 21, with the authority I've been given from my Father, I give to you and I send you. With that authority, I send you and, and also I share that authority with you to the apostles to begin to set up his church. And that call to live sent with that intentionality in mind is certainly something we embrace. Uh, so we'll take a three-week look at that, how we prepare ourselves for that, what exactly we are aiming at whenever we say go live sent, and, and certainly uh, you can if you've ever shot a gun or a bow and arrow, you've, maybe you've, uh, you've prepared, you've drawn it back, maybe even aimed, but there's still one thing left to do, right? You've got to be brave enough to actually let it fly. Um, and so we'll talk about what it means to actually for us not to just talk about it, 
not to just prepare, not even just to know what the right thing is, but to, to go to live sin in our daily lives. So that, that's kind of where we're going for the next you know, several months. Uh, but back to today, uh, we've, we've talked about, or I set up the, the series two weeks ago, and I said that the first chapter could be broken up into, and this is how we're looking at it, could be broken up into three sections. The introduction of Jesus, and we, we said that that was uh, the fact that he is a coming king. And Dave talked last week about the description of Jesus and, and how primarily, though there's some other really powerful imagery going on, that two driving forces of him as a high priest and him as a, a coming judge uh, that his future administration would be judged, but his current reign, and he is effectively uh, high priesting right now as we speak. Even we read in First John how we have an advocate in heaven. Like Jesus is currently doing that for you, for me, and in a, in a really effective kind of way, keeping us saved and securing our future salvation. That's a powerful look at his current role. And then uh, he finishes chapter 1, John does as he writes with an interaction with Jesus. And, and here, just to kind of, again, show my card so we kind of know where we're going so we can go there together, is, is we're going to see Christ as a lover of his church, a lover of his church with the stars and the leadership of those churches in his hands secure. We're going to see Christ not only as a coming king, high priest, and judge, but a lover of his church and of Willow Bend Church. And so for those of you who love Jesus and love his church, this is going to be a massive encouragement for us to remember um, certainly as, as, again, servant leaders of, of this congregation, uh, we are especially as elders encouraged, and, and those of you acting in elder pastoral roles, uh, taking on some of the ownership of this church, we're going to be encouraged today to remember that it's not us, it's not ours, it's, it's Christ's. He's the keeper and the lover of his church. So without further ado, uh, ladies and gentlemen, the, the word of, of God, if you would turn to Revelation 1, we'll read verses 17 through 20. It says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands, the seven stars are the angels or messengers of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. We ask that, uh, that you'd be so um, just obviously present with us this morning as we study your word, Holy Spirit, that you would quicken us to, to discern, that you would quicken us to to be moved, convicted, encouraged, and challenged by, by your truth in Scripture, and that you would speak um, uh, clearly through me, even if despite me, Lord, we're grateful to open your word together. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Um, the, the focus of our study this morning of these first four verses is on the powerful and loving right hand of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, if you read these verses, and I'll admit, this might be more of a Bible study together um, than, than a typical sermon, though I say that, it'll feel mostly like a sermon because I will get excited and rant and yell a little bit, uh, all, all in good ways. But at the same time, there is so much here that we're not just going to cruise by. Um, but the, the thing that, that as you read this, while there's a lot of things there, one really powerful theme is the right hand of Jesus. 
So I want you to be watching for that because that's significant. Not only that he holds, but not only what he holds, and not only the fact that it's in his right hand, but all of them together carry uh, massive significance for us today as we see Christ as a powerful and a, and a lover of and a keeper of his church. We see him demonstrated here in intense control and comfort uh, for his church. Uh, however, and, and we can't ignore how this passage starts, it, before it becomes a comfort to John, John first experiences intense fear. And Dave read this one verse as the end of his passage last week because he set up and, and described and read this really fantastic, glorious vision of Jesus and all this, uh, the, his, what he wore and what he did and what he looked like and his hair and his eyes and his feet carrying massive sig- significance. And John, being in the Spirit, witnessed a glorification of the Son of God in glory And so how could David not read that verse last week and left you guys hanging for an entire week? How did John respond? Well, we're reminded this morning how John responded. He responded in fear by falling at the feet of this glorified son of man as a dead man. So we see that before he is going to receive this great comfort and confidence in the Christ that loves his church, he first feels terror. And this is a very natural response and just... Um, as a refresher, when, whenever we see our sinful nature combined with the glory of God, this is just what we get, okay? Whenever uh, Isaiah uh, experienced the presence of God, the glory of God, like we talked about two weeks ago, he says this, and you'll remember this. He says, woe is me, cursed is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Ezekiel 1 and chapter 3, uh, and then other places say that he fell on his face, Daniel uh, 10, I love this, we'll read a quick piece. It says, And I, Daniel, alone saw this vision. For the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell uh, upon them anyways. They fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, possibly similar to, to some things John had seen. And no strength, Daniel says, was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and I heard the sound... Then I heard the sound of his words. I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. A few verses later, he says, I was mute. This is a very common experience whenever an unglorified human being and and sinful in nature um, is, is transported somehow in the spirit, as John says, to God's turf in glory to see God himself. This is a very common, and I would argue, the only right response And we see it throughout Scripture. Uh, What's interesting to note, though, is that this John, who is now on his face in fear, was the the disciple that, quote, Jesus loved, right? If you've read the the Gospel of John, maybe you've read that. And it's John, a lot like Peter did. He'll reference himself without using his words as though he were, you know, to be so bold. John doing the same thing, writing and pinning this, this Gospel, but calling himself secretly the, 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 the disciple that Jesus loved. And this man on the floor as though dead was the same man who so intimately leaned against the chest or the side of Jesus in John 20, 21, or in John 13. And John makes it clear, John 20, 21, that he leaned against intimately Jesus. But this was a different Jesus in, in form, wasn't it? This was a glorified Jesus Though intimate relationships had been his past experience, he sees him now in glory, and he is as a dead man. I think it's risky to reveal a 90-year-old man to glory, 
I think you need to consider heart health whenever you do something like this. It's risky to, to prank someone over, and I think this is safe, over 90 years of age. Miss Debbie, I hope the surprise birthday party went well for your older friend. But Debbie concerned me yesterday. She said that she's off to a surprise birthday party for a woman who had mentored and discipled her, and she was 90 years old. And I was like, okay, we'll just go easy on her. I, I had this actually thought kind of in the back of my mind, because um, I typically know what I'm you know, going to share before Saturday. But, um, but I had this in the back of my mind. I'm going, man, I hope that works out for her, because it's risky to surprise, in this case, much more, to expose a 90-plus-year-old person to, to glory. But again, he was preserved in the Spirit for sure. The point is, though, he sees Christ as he is, and he falls over dead, regardless of how intimate his relationship was once with him. And this is what we love about our Jesus, our God, is he's quick to comfort, right? He doesn't leave us uh, with dirt on our face for the sake of mourning. He leaves us, and he allows us to have dirt on our face in humility, because he desires to know that we see him as he ought to be seen and that we see then ourselves as we ought to be seen. So in a lot of ways, this is the only right response. But without just leaving us there as, as he were to be heartless, he is quick to comfort. And this is what we, we read. We read that he puts his right hand on John, right? He says, do not be afraid. Jesus, uh, his touch brought comfort. And then as he, as he goes on, and as we'll read in just a minute, his words are going to bring comfort. And if you look at just the touch of Jesus, you'll remember Matthew 17, the transfiguration. A, a brief glimpse that we talked about two weeks ago. A brief glimpse into the second coming of Jesus in his glory. Uh, Peter, James, and John get this little sneak peek. And, and we're told in Matthew 17, the disciples fell on their faces. And Jesus, even in that moment, puts his hand on their shoulder, right? And says, it's okay, you can, you can get up. He says, rise, have no fear in Matthew 17. Matthew 8, we're, we're told that a leper, um, he, he bows and shows reverence. And Jesus stretches out his hand and touches him. Uh, Jesus does this to the blind man in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus is quick to comfort those who, who take the proper position of, of humility seeing him for who he is, seeing themselves for who they are, and he's quick to provide the comfort that, that I believe only the touch of Jesus can bring, right? We see this again in Matthew 9 and Mark 7 and Luke 22, Christ by his touch being quick to comfort. We're told in Scripture that, that the right hand, is, as even is today, uh, or even as, as is true today in many cultures, the right hand is, is, is symbolic, right? It's symbolic of power, authority. And in Exodus 15, we're, we, we're told that it's a, a symbol of privilege, the right hand of privilege. You use your right hand to bless, to transfer um, possessions, to transfer rights. It's a right hand of privilege. Isaiah 41 tells us that the right hand is a hand of power and authority. The right hand is a hand of protection, as we see in Psalm 16. The right hand here is significant. This is, in fact, a powerful touch from a loving God. I love this. Uh, as we continue to read, he, he, he calms John and brings comfort with a touch, and then he provides comfort with his words. And what, what phrase is most often the command in Scripture whenever men like John and other, uh, uh, other uh, prophets have a vision like this? What's the command? Even angelic visitations, do not fear, fear not. You could even translate it, stop being afraid. And these are, in fact, commands. And, and something I noticed uh, this week is that inside of our fallen nature, that the, the, the Godhead, all three, God the Father, God the, the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, appeal to us first 
in comfort because we first uh, respond in, in fear. Uh, and God the Father introduces himself to Adam and Eve again after the fall when they realize that they are in fact naked and they feel shame. And what do they do? They run from his presence. He said, where did you go? Adam says, I was afraid. And they begin to have this conversation and God applies some, some punishment, some disciplines, right? He curses uh, our enemy, the devil, the, the serpent. He curses the serpent and then he, he gives uh, a punishment, a consequence to the woman, a consequence to the man. Pain birth will now be painful and or, or childbirth will now be painful and, and uh, working the ground to, to, to till up the food is not going to just happen anymore. You're going to have to work hard for it. But because of your sin and now the shame that's been revealed to you, so even in the context of consequences, they begin a dialogue and they continue a relationship. Then what does God do in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21? He kills the first animal, making the first sacrifice for sin, killing the first thing. Wherever there is sin, there has to be death, right? And he allows as a band-aid, as a, as a concession for their sin, he begins this institution of sacrifices. God making the first sacrifice, creating the first skin to cover the shame of man and woman. But their first experience with Father God was Him comforting them in fear. Him responding to them first in fear. I think that ought to be our first idea or image of a holy God whenever we are aware of our sin. But God doesn't leave us there, right? In, in making a sacrifice, he symbolizes the lengths he would go to to reconcile mankind and himself. So men, men were afraid when God made the first move into relationship. And then we see God the Spirit in John 20. Uh, we know that on the evening of that day, the, the first day of the week when Christ was raised from the dead, the doors uh, were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And he breathed on them. Now, the, the Spirit is introduced in a context or a situation where the disciples were very afraid. And then what do we see the disciples doing after that moment when they received the Holy Spirit? And even on Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell on more, they received boldness and power, and no longer were they afraid. And we see God, the, the Son, His first command to His first disciple is when He said, Peace be with you. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. But they saw that he was, in fact, the Son of God, and they fell on their face. Once again, a lot of falling on their face, a lot of humility going on because they saw Christ clearly. And Christ, taking in his first disciple, his first command was about comfort. Christ is quick to comfort whenever we humble ourselves before him. God continues to do this, uh, and we see this further in, in the Old Testament. Isaiah 40.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jesus does the same thing in Matthew 14 when he walks on the water, and they're freaking out because they see a ghost. And his first command is, Peace be with you. Peace be still. Comfort is given whenever we are humbled and whenever we are afraid in the presence of, of God. The, the, the command, fear not, or stop being afraid, is, is easily uh, mentioned over 200 times in Scripture. 
And then I love as Jesus continues to talk to John, he, he tells him why he ought not to be afraid. He says, I am the first and the last. Back to Revelation here, verse, end of verse 17. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades, to which if I were John, I would say, I know, that's why I'm freaking out right now. But he's going, listen, my hand is on your shoulder. You, you don't just have access to me, you have approval with me. All, all these things that I just mentioned are, are yours. I'm eternal, I didn't have a beginning. I, I came in the form of, of man, I, I did in fact die, but, but I rose back to life and I am here forever and ever. And, and that God right there puts his right hand on you and accepts you. So in that case, stand and fear not because all the things that you ought to be fearing about me work for your good. All the power that you see I have is for, is for you, secures your eternity. All the, 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 the God, the deity of me is, is what allowed me then to humble myself, die a perfect death on the cross. Everything that I did that you see in me that might be provoking fear in you is exactly the God who loves you. That's a powerful statement for him to say, I am God. I am, uh, is the covenant name of, of God. And there's Jesus, the, the son of man, uh, again, further emphasizing his deity, that he is God and that he and God are one, as Jesus claimed. When he says, I'm the living one who died, he didn't just say, I died. He said, I became dead. The literal Greek says, I became dead. Why is that significant? Well, that means God in his nature, being God, could not have ceased being God and, and died as God. He became man, and that, that humanity very much wired to his, his, his God nature, his deity, he sensed the pain of death, didn't he? He sensed the temptation of sin, didn't he? And that nature, the shell of him, the form he took, very much died. But his, his nature, while the form died, his nature didn't, because remember, he was and he forever and ever is, he said. And then he goes on to say, I have the keys of death and Hades, saying that he's have, he has authority over death and control to the access of hell and eternal life. So what that means for us, before we too quickly apply something that's true about Jesus to us, and by the way, we can't always do that with Scripture, can we? We can't always read a story and say, ooh, that's me, I'm that character. We can't always put ourselves and, and acclaim everything that's true about God or something that, that represents uh, uh, that, that one of the apostles preached about who God was or something that Jesus claims of himself. We can't too quickly grab that and say, that's me too. Well, no, that's, there's certain things, believe it or not, that Jesus can do that you can do. There's certain things that Jesus can say that we can't say. But here, how do we know that this, this access to eternal uh, hope is ours. If Christ was raised, how do we know that, that we too will be raised? Well, simply, there's a Bible verse about it. So, Romans 6 says this, and this is great encouragement and hope for us. Romans 6, verse 7 says, For uh, one has died, for one who has died, thank you, has been set free from sin. Now, if, he, if we have died in Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God 
in Christ. And then Revelation 20, Revelation 20 at the end gives us even a more clear glimpse of the hope we have in our own resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection over such the second death or eternal death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand years. This is the literal hope that we have dying once, not dying a second time eternally. We will all die physically. We will all die a first death. And those who are punished by eternal death will die a second eternal death forever. And then if you read 1 Corinthians 15, all of this gives the believer great comfort in the hope of our resurrection. Why? Because Christ holds the keys to death and to Hades. William Barclay, a theologian, uh, I think pretty aptly sees three comforts in the church uh, in this passage. He says this, We who are Christians believe that Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, that because He lives, we also live. And therefore, for us, the bitterness and fearful uncertainty of death is forever past. John reporting to these churches, Jesus, resurrected, in glory, holding keys to eternity, would have been a great picture of of hope. Not just comfort now, but now confidence. And no less to us, as we think about our own eternity And while we're not sure, while we're not told here specifically, which hand would you guess uh, might he have those keys in? Most likely, if not for anything else, symbolically in his right hand. The right hand of power and security and preservation and protection of the saints. And if that is true so far, we have the shoulder of John and we have the keys to death in Hades in his right hand. And there's one other thing that he holds in his right hand that we'll read about. And just real briefly, verse 19 talks about his instruction. So he sees these things. And we're given a real clear outline to the whole book of Revelation. He says that you need to write what you have seen, which we interpret as chapter 1. And then he says, write the things that are. And that's currently the information needed for these seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And then he says, write the things that must take place afterwards. And that's chapters 4 through 22. And so here, as we finish chapter 1, it's obviously no surprise how this lays foundation for, quote, the things that are in chapters 2 and 3 to the churches. But the first encouragement to these churches is not instruction to them, is not commendation or condemnation. It is a vision of a glorified Jesus Christ, that he is a coming king, he is a high priest and a judge, and that he is a lover and a keeper of his church And part of the aspect of of that that comfort and that confidence is the fact that he holds those keys. How encouraging would that have been to those churches? Is that encouraging to you today as you consider your eternity? Yes. Yes, it is. Verse 20 says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands and the seven... He says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. So here each church has an angelos or a messenger or an angel. This messenger is most likely a leader in the church. And we'll talk more about this whenever we start our our series on the the, the seven churches. 
We get some encouragement for that view uh, even back in Malachi that, that defends the fact that, that positions of leadership in the church uh, would often be, in fact, the, the mouthpiece. And not only does this apply to, to prophets when the Lord spoke through prophets, but also to Malachi here whenever the Lord would, would use and speak through priests. Malachi 2.7 says, The lips of a priest uh, should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is, the priest is, the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So that quite possibly could apply to the fact that this word angelos uh, and, and the, the messages applying to the churches and the reprimandations or the reprimands not being addressed to angels, heavenly beings, uh, but actually reprimands to leaders of the church. And again, as Dave pointed out, the likelihood of a heavenly being Jesus sending a message to an earthly being John to send a message to heavenly being angels to send a message to the church is highly unlikely. Either way, we'll hold that pretty loosely, though we are pretty certain that this, and we're in good company to believe that angelos means, or angelos means, messenger, messenger meaning one of the elders or preaching, teaching pastors of the church. So here Christ lovingly controls his church as a heavenly king from heaven. Revelation 1.12 says, and we'll remember this real quick, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and I love this, and in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Christ then is, is present with, he's intimately aware of the, 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 the information needed for these churches, intimately aware of the, the problems, the, the, the deficiencies of these churches. He is truly among or in the midst of his church and churches. This offers a new confidence for the church and for our church. And if I'm honest, and, and maybe you would join me in this, there's, there's days where I do worry about the church. There's days I do worry about our church. If you love and care, even if you're serving and, and involved in our church, you might also worry about. Matter of fact, the more you get involved and the more you know, of you guys that you meet and the more you get to know me, the more you might worry about our church that the Lord would still use us. That's kind of a joke, but, but maybe there's times where you worry about the church and maybe even our church and you pray to God for the church and for our church. I'm reminded of Numbers 11 that says, the Lord said to Moses, I love this, and I think this might apply to us as we continue to look at Christ as a lover and a keeper of his church and his ability to do that. Numbers 11:23 says, the Lord said to Moses, is the Lord's hand shortened? Now, shall, uh, now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. Is the Lord's hand shortened? The hand that can reach down and comfort John is the hand that, that holds the, the seven stars, the seven messengers of his church. His hand is not short. We're reminded that this is Christ's church. In Matthew 16, verse 18, it says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, this profession of faith that Peter makes, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Colossians 1 reminds us again, he is the head of the body, the church Christ is. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead to be resurrected forever, that in everything he might be preeminent. Ephesians 2 reminds us again, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you're also being built together into a dwelling place 
for God by the Holy Spirit. And the cornerstone is not my preaching. The cornerstone is not our elders. The cornerstone is not you. The cornerstone is not our, uh, the fact that we, are, we have a historical landmark out by Park Boulevard, and we've been here for a hundred million years. The, the cornerstone of our church, church, is Jesus Christ. And as we pursue to be faithful to him, he keeps and holds and controls the church and this church. And that's comforting, that's encouraging to us. John 10 says there is one flock and one shepherd. May that continue to be true. The deepest desire for our elders here is that Jesus would actively be the founder and foundation, the architect and builder, the shepherd and lead pastor of Willoughby Church. This is the only comfort we have. Seeing Christ the way John sees him, John pinning the things that, that he sees in Revelation 1, this glorious vision of Jesus, all he is to us right now in heaven is the only comfort and confidence we have for our salvation personally and, and for the hope that we, we, we want to see in, or the hope we have in the church, being salt and light in, in our world and glorifying God and, and being faithful to Jesus. This is the only comfort we have is to see Christ as we see him in this vision. How, how gracious for God to reveal this to John and for John to write these letters to the churches and to our church in his, in his word. That Christ is among the church. He is a coming king, a high priest and judge, and a lover of his church. And frankly, this is the only comfort each of us has individually. That we are among his church. So the comfort of the church is that he is among his church. But the only comfort we can have personally is that we individually would be counted as part of his church. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom as we see in Proverbs 10 or 9:10 and the knowledge of the holy one is insight. What does that mean? That means that to know God at least initially is to fear him. And if we want to be in the church and comforted by Jesus despite his glory and our by nature our sinfulness though as we sang and celebrated together we are righteous in Christ. I'm no longer a sinner so to speak though I though I sin. But I'm righteous before God through Christ. And the only comfort I have is that he might put his hand, and he has, on my shoulder as I bow in the dirt. That he might comfort those who humble themselves. He desires to make worthy those who are not worthy. He desires and promises to raise up those who humble themselves. And so this vision is, is only as compelling to us as we are confident that we are, in fact, among his church. He is among his church. He's a keeper and a lover of his church. And so the question for us today is, are we among his church? Well, I'm at church. Well, it's not what I mean. You're, you're in a building that we've come to call the uh, church. But the church, the invisible truth, the capital C church, the, the saints of God, are, are you among his church? Have you in a sense, seen him for who he is? And have you seen yourself for who you are? Have you had a similar salvation experience like many of these men who have seen God in glory and their only right response is to fall on their face? And maybe it wasn't as emotionally, physically overwhelming, but spiritually and intellectually, maybe you realize, I need the gospel. And maybe not 
physically, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you bow. And then a God who is quick to comfort puts his hand on you and says, that's all I need to see. All I have to know is that you are humbled by my presence. And the salvation experience is that we are saved by his grace. That the only thing that's meritable about our salvation experience is that we have been humbled. That we have been humbled. Have you been humbled this morning? Have you, in a sense, spiritually had your face in the dirt and seen him for who he is? Because if that has been your experience, his right hand, or so that the grace of God in Christ, that's the life Christ lives for you. And he seeks to, and he desires and promises to raise up those who humble themselves. And if that's the case, then you are in fact among his church. And if you are among his church, he is among his church. And we have great hope for our eternity because he holds the keys. He is currently a high priest. He is a coming king. And he, in fact, is a keeper and a lover of his church. And this is, according to Revelation chapter 1 so far, the Christ that we worship. Let's pray.